Our Father, this is a day that is set aside in which we are reminded of who we love the most. We have come in with perhaps uh, cool hearts. We have come in with um, a bucket load of uh, distractions. And we pray that as we gather as your people this morning, as we gather around these, these hymns of worship, as we gather around the um, proclaimed, taught word, and as we gather around a table that contains emblems that point us to a crucified Christ, we pray that our hearts would be so strangely and mystically warmed that we would leave here saying, if we've ever loved you, it's now. Confirm confirm our souls afresh as we lay hold of the body and blood of Christ by faith, renewing our, our enjoyment of our union with the Savior. Our Father, um, we as a church have many needs. There are people whose bodies are racked with pain in this room. There are marriages that are, that are drifting apart. There are um, children who have such have concerned us so. There are young men and women whose whose priorities have been challenged by everything around them, and so we are we are we are cut adrift in so many ways from the moorings of our faith. Might this hour of worship remind us who we are and who owns us? That we are, we are not our own, that we are bought with a price, and we are the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, and very honestly so glad to be such. Father, we pray for our country. More and more she is um, deluged with problems for which solutions seem rare. And I pray that you will grant us mercy, O oh God, whoever occupies that White House for another four years, O oh God, they will do us no good unless you see fit to grant mercy. You, um, you are the ones that turn the hearts of the king, and so turn the hearts of the leaders of this land. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of giving. Uh, we have a lot. Uh, most of us are very well fed and clothed and housed and and we have insurances and 401ks and a bit of job security. We are, we are blessed people. And to whom much has been given, much is required. And so with that sense and sobriety of our stewardship, we give. And I pray that you'll use every dime to honor yourself. We pray it, of course, in Jesus' name. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and follow as I begin reading at verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 17. We'll read only through verse 21. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that is something that endures forever. Guys, I think uh, you're uh, well aware that we are in a summer-long series of uh, the topic, discussing the topic of self-esteem. Um, we come now to a different phase of that series. We, uh, we come now to uh, do something differently. The days of demolition are over. That is, uh, it's time to uh, begin construction. It's time to, um, to fix and to repair I, I thought of a story I heard about a, a man who had a warehouse that he wanted to sell, and he took a prospective buyer over to see the warehouse, and um, uh, it had really gotten run down over the years, and uh, the windows were all knocked out, and the doors were hanging off the hinges, and the building was really in pretty ratty shape, and the, the owner turned to the prospective buyer, and he said, he said, don't worry, that's all cosmetic, we can fix it, and, and uh, I'll, I'll put it in great shape for you, and and the prospective buyer said that that won't be necessary. I'm not interested in the building. I'm only interested in the site. That is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear down the building and I'm going to build something new on the site. I, I say that to say that's where I think we are in terms of this series. We've torn down the thing, at least I hope we have, this, um, this secular model of pursuing self-esteem. We've torn it down. And now it's time to... Um, to rebuild, to construct, to fix, to repair. The time of plucking up is over. It's time to plant. It's um, tearing down is, is behind us. Let's put something on the site. Let's, let's replace what we've torn down with something that I hope is so consistently biblical. I had a week of vacation the last week of uh, July, and um, I spent my vacation week... With my newest grandson, I, I think many of you know that my middle daughter adopted a seven-year-old Russian orphan. And so we spent the week with my, my newest grandson, who, doesn't, who still doesn't speak much English. But on the first night that we were together, we, um, we had a birthday party. My, my son-in-law and my daughter and Kolya, my grandson, uh, all have birthdays in August. And so we, um, we had a big birthday party for them. And uh, opening all these presents, and Susie had bought a cake, and, uh, and we just had a grand old time. But one of the, t the presents that Kolya got was a toy. It was a toy jet ski. And riding on the toy jet ski was none other than Spider-Man. Well, uh, it was a little battery-operated battery toy that had this, made this annoying noise, you know, as it you know, motored about the room. 
And because it was a jet ski, Kolya concluded that, um, that it was designed for the water. And I said, no, <laughs> no, that's not that. You know, again, we got a communication problem here. But uh, uh, no, that's not, that's not batteries, the water, don't mix. Don't, uh, no, that's not. To, but anyway, he could not be deterred. So he, he runs it out to the, the pool, he and his daddy, and uh, they, they stick it in the pool. And within seconds, I mean nanoseconds, that thing was headed to the bottom. And so Kolya grabbed it, and, um, and it had only been in the water a couple of three seconds. But it was too late. The, uh, the batteries, water don't mix, and the toy is ruined. Now, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, as a parent, what do you do? Do you punish your son because he misused the toy? Or is the broken toy punishment enough? Well, I think you would choose the latter. At least my son-in-law did. Um, that the broken toy was punishment enough. You know, gang, last week I said that in terms of our pursuit of self-esteem, we're broken. We're broken, ladies and gentlemen. We're broken. And as if our brokenness wasn't punishment enough, there's more. Because we chose the wrong basis on which to build a sense of worth, ladies and gentlemen. Not only are we broken, we're guilty. Can the brokenness be fixed? Oh yeah, you bet. But the way that it must be fixed is by first addressing the guilt. Stage one in reconstruction, ladies and gentlemen, is dealing with the guilt. I'm guilty. Guilty of what? I'm, I'm guilty of violating the standards of God. You know, we Christians don't have much trouble with that idea. That comes rather easily to us, but you can surely understand how upsetting that whole idea is to a whole lot of people. It's upsetting to them because it presupposes two things. That is, my guilt presupposes two things. First of all, it presupposes the existence of a God. And then it presupposes my accountability to him for my actions. The claim of Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is that we live in a moral world. And the apex of that morality is to be found and traced to the holiness of God. And that holiness is given expression. It's described in, in written precepts that we are found in this book. Now, if that's not something that you believe, I can see when I mention guilt that those are fighting words for you. But you know, I bet that even you, from time to time, wrestle with guilt. So, so don't tune this all out just yet. Gang, we, um, we have fallen short of God's moral standards, and as a result, we're guilty. And don't confuse that with shame. Um, shame is falling short of what 
we think we ought to be. Guilt is falling short of what God says we should be and ought to be. Shame, guys, has, um, has to do with our location in our social settings. Guilt has to do with our moral position. The opposite of guilt is innocence, blamelessness, guiltlessness. But the opposite of shame is not innocence. The opposite of shame is is dignity, it's glory, it's honor. So you can't confuse those two, guys. Guilt begs for forgiveness. Shame longs for worth, self-worth, for acceptance. Those two are different things. And we're going to... We're going to spend the last three or four weeks of this series addressing this issue of shame, our our need, our desire for uh, dignity and, and honor. But shame that has created this sense of discomfort in our social world, and, and that's important. But compared to guilt, it's peanuts. Guys, um, our guilt has rendered us not unacceptable in our social setting. It's rendered us unacceptable before God. If you deal with the guilt, then you can go on to deal with shame. But if you ignore the real guilt, then it doesn't make any difference what you fix. It's not going to help. The first step, ladies and gentlemen, the first bit of reconstruction of this whole sense of a biblical self-worth has to deal with guilt. And that's what I want to look at this morning. How is God to value and even love people who are still guilty? The answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, how does God value guilty people? The answer to that question is found in understanding The glorious doctrine of justification by faith. Um, it is, it is that doctrine, guys, that lies at the root, it lies at the heart of a biblical self-worth. Now, guys, um, we could spend hours on that subject, but we only have brief minutes, um, to discuss it. But dear ones, listen to me. If we are ever to enjoy health, emotional, spiritual health, you must first grasp at the soulish level, you must first grasp the preciousness of this doctrine of justification by faith. You know, guys, um, the greatest minds in the history of the church have gone to great lengths to put this down in such a way that you and I can understand it. They have, they have labored over the very terms that are used to explain it. So I want you to labor with me for 15 minutes. Because God's lying at the heart 
of a biblical sense of self-worth is a, is a grasp, is a taste, is an enjoyment of the provisions that are made for us in Christ Jesus as summarized in this doctrine called justification by faith. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to explain it briefly. And then I'm going to try to illustrate it and how it has application to our old sense of worth. Okay? Now, guys, I want to warn you. These are, these are concepts that have been labored over for centuries. They don't come easy. These are not simple words. They're not simple concepts. But I'm saying to you, if we're ever going to get to the place where we're healthy, you've got to get this. Unfortunately, you're stuck with me trying to explain it to you. But I'm going to give it my best shot. Here we go. Guys, at Calvary, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we are told in this text, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we are told that Christ becomes sin for us. That little prepositional phrase is very important. He becomes sin for us. The Father punishes the sin of His people. He punishes my sin in the punishing act of crucifixion. My sin is taken by Christ and is then punished by God. That is, Christ is punished by God for the sin that he has become. And that sin that he has become is mine. Guys, the work of Christ on the cross establishes the objective basis of Christian self-worth. Because it is there that God establishes a relationship with sinful people, with guilty people. And he does it by dealing with our guilt, by punishing the sin-bearing substitute, Christ for us. The, the issue between me as a guilty sinner and him as a holy God has been eliminated. The debt is paid. The guilt is gone. And all that is necessary for sin to be dealt with has been done. And it has been done well by Christ on the cross. So forgiveness, pardon, is mine for the asking. And the New Testament calls that asking, the New Testament calls it faith. It is faith that unites us to Christ affecting this radical change in my status before God. Gang, the New Testament goes to great lengths to try and give you a sense of understanding of the change in that status. It, it uses, it, it, the, the New Testament is rich with images simply trying to convey the, the beauty and the profundity of this change of status that has been wrought by this act of Christ. For instance, here's some of the language that is used. The, the language of ransom. 
Guys, we understand what a ransom is. Uh, it's found in Mark 10 for one place. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We understand ransom, don't we? Did you see Denzel Washington's movie, Man on Fire? Apparently, it had some kind of factual basis behind it because of all the kidnappings in Mexico City. Apparently, some little girl was kidnapped and they got her and whatever. But you know what ransoms are. Imagine, imagine that you have been kidnapped by a group of international kidnappers and, and the ransom is set at $500,000. And you know your folks don't have that kind of money. And, but a group of your friends get together and, and they have a bake sale. And they, they, they raise the $500,000 and they pay the ransom. And as a result of that ransom being paid, you have been set free. You understand that? Well, that's the language of the New Testament. There is one small difference. It's not a group of people who paid the ransom. It's a person. Justification by faith says that the ransom was paid by Christ. And the result is, I'm set free. I'm, I'm liberated. Guys, the, the gospel states this to us. It says that no person nor group of persons can pay what is owed. Only God can pay. And he has. Only God can satisfy God. And he has. That's one of the images. There's another image that you understand that the Bible uses to try and convey this whole idea. It's found in our text. The word reconciled. We understand reconciliation. There's reconciliation ministries all throughout the city of Memphis. Uh, much of the counseling that I do is, is trying to reconcile a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. Gang, you know what's implied in the word reconciliation? There is, um, there's a broken personal relationship somewhere, somewhere. There is, um, there's, uh, there's a warfare, a strife, an enmity between two people. There are offenses that need to be forgiven, that the, the relationship needs to be mended, the friendship needs to be restored. Well, gang, Christianity is about becoming a friend of God's. And that's what Jesus calls me in John 15. He calls me a friend. You understand that? Let me give you one more. All of these are designed, I think, by the New Testament to help us understand the great doctrine of justification by faith. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Excuse me, the parable of the prodigal son. You know that parable. Prodigal son gets his money, his inheritance, he goes off to the faraway country and squanders it and he comes back and he's walking down that road and and he looks off into the distance and there's this old guy who's hiked up his robes, his knobby knees are showing, and he's running down the road to meet his son. And he embraces and restores and celebrates and forgives. And my, what a rich picture of restoration and reconciliation. Now, guys, again, all of that imagery is designed by the New Testament to help you get Justification by faith. Justification, the word justified, has a rich Old Testament history to it. It it, it denotes the Old Testament concept of getting right with God. Now again, guys, 
The language has been pounded out over centuries. Get this language. I, I, I hope it's clear enough for you. Gang, faith is the instrument by which I lay hold of the benefits of Christ for me. Faith unites me to Christ in all of his benefits. There's a Latin phrase. It goes like this. Propter Christum perfidum. You ever heard of that one? Well, I'm sure you have. Propter Christum perfidum. On account of Christ, through faith. That's what it means. Propter Christum perfidum. On the basis of what Christ did, through faith, God justifies sinners. Faith is like a channel it's a, through a, which all the benefits of Christ flow to us. Now, this next sentence is very important. Get it, guys. I, I know you can. Both the external foundation and the internal means of appropriation of justification are both God-given. Let me say it again. Both the external grounds, the external foundation, the external basis, which is the finished work of Christ, and the internal means of appropriating that faith. Both of those things, ladies and gentlemen, are God-given. Because only God can satisfy God. Luther said it like this. I love this, ladies and gentlemen. This is the result of understanding justification by faith. Luther said, it is accepting that you are accepted despite being unacceptable. Accepting that you are accepted despite being unacceptable. You know, guys, to read some of the gobbledygook that comes out of the average bookstore, you would think... That the way that you come to the place of appreciating being acceptable is that you get up in the morning, you go to the bathroom mirror, and you splash water in your face, and you say to the mirror, I'm invincible. Has that worked? No, ladies and gentlemen. I come to the place where I know I'm accepted. I accept that, even knowing I'm unacceptable, based On the fact that God has provided an objective basis on which he justifies me. He puts me right with himself. Through faith, which is a gift, the Christian is closed in the righteousness of Christ. Even though I remain sinful. Sin and righteousness coexist in me. We we remain sinners inwardly, but righteous before God. Here's another way that Luther tried to explain it. He said this, They are unknowingly righteous and knowingly sinners. They are sinners in fact, but righteous in hope. We are sinners in fact, but righteous in hope. There's another Latin phrase for you. I'm just full of them today, aren't 
Uh, here's another Latin phrase for you guys. I love this. Simul justice et peccator. You ever heard that? You know, I, I was working out one day and there was a young man that was uh, working out in the same room and, and he had simul justice et peccator written on his, on his t-shirt. Then I went up to him and I said, you know what that means? He said, I ain't got the foggiest notion. Do you know what it means? Simul justice et peccator. My daughter did this for me years ago. Here's what it means. This is hanging in my office. I just took it off the wall. I'll go back. But Simul justice et peccator. Simul. Simultaneously. At the same time. Simul. At the same time. Justice. Just. Et. And. Peccator. Sinful. At the same time. I am just and sinful. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what grows out of this great doctrine. Inwardly, I'm, a, I'm, still, a, I'm still a sinner, but before God I stand righteous. Is sinful useless and peccator. Sin and righteousness coexist within me. Now guys, that's my effort at explaining this. Let me, let me try to illustrate it, and then I'm finished. I, I heard, I'm trying to illustrate how that's important, how that's the objective basis for my beginning the reconstruction of a biblical self-image. All right? I heard that this actually happened. I can't imagine it. But I, it was a church gathering, and the, the man who was speaking to the, the audience asked the audience to rate themselves. I want you to rate yourself on a scale of 0 to 10, uh, 0 being bad and 10 being perfect. I rate yourself. So they did, and the results came back in. And the, the audience had rated themselves somewhere between 3 and 5. And when the speaker saw that they had rated themselves somewhere between 3 and 5... He was outraged and he upbraided them and he said, you know, you all ought to have rated yourselves as a 10. And because you're all perfect and you merely suffer from low self-esteem. And this is the clincher. When he said that, the response of his audience was a bit unusual. They laughed. They thought he was kidding. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, he only got half of it right. I am a 10. I am a 10 in status before God. But I am no moral superstar and I know it. And no amount of razzmatazz and psychobabble and sleight of hand is going to convince me of anything other than I am a 3. But in terms of status, yeah... You bet. But ladies and gentlemen, here's my point. Modern theories of uh, books on self-esteem are trying to get you to forget one of those. The Christian gospel says that they both exist in the same human. I am a ten and I am a three at the same time. I don't have to look into the mirror and say, I'm okay and you're okay. 
I don't have to do that, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want to have to pretend. I am given the status of ten based on the merits of Christ. And then I am promised that by the indwelling Holy Spirit, He's moving me to the nature of ten. I'm, um, I'm moving from a three to a four. And all the while, I'm enjoying the status of being safe as a ten. Gang, um, the message of the Christian gospel allows me to deal honestly with my failings. I don't have to ignore them. I don't have to wish them away. I don't have to uh, excuse them. I don't have to. I can face my failings, knowing all the while that I am safe in what God has wrought through Jesus Christ on my behalf. Guys, there's not a Christian I know of that's ever going to get a good sense of biblical self-worth. He might fake one, you know, with bravado and moxie. We Christians don't have to fake anything. We don't have to fake it at all, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a ten and a three. And I work on my three in the confidence of being safe and secure and forgiven, knowing that God has proclaimed me a tin. I celebrate my tinness while I labor by God's grace on my threeness. My threeness never threatens my tinness. You get it? It's the first step. You want to rate yourself somehow? Here's what you rate yourself. Samuel Eustace at Peccator. Now bring that to this table. Let's pray. I pray, O oh God, that you will use these uh, babblings of mine to try and, and uh, assure your people that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, something objective to us, something outside of us because of that great work accomplished and finished for us, that we have the status of a tin, knowing that what we bring to this table is all kinds of inconsistency, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of, of um, failing. But we come to address and ask for forgiveness of our failings, knowing that because of Christ, we are safe. I pray our safety will give us greater initiative to move away from our threeness on to a greater conformity to Jesus Christ. Now meet us. Meet us as sinful people, O oh God. We come to the table to remember the one who has made tinness our very status before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.